Hey everyone, welcome to a bonus episode of No Cartridge Audio. This is actually an episode I recorded a few weeks ago for the No Cartridge Leftist Book Club, uh, but I wanted to let everyone get a taste of what we were doing over there. This is a uh, basically a book club in which I read uh, sections of Capital. We're not too far in at this point. We're probably about 20 to 30 pages in. Um, but as it get, gets past the first bits, we'll go a little faster. Um, I think you'll get a sense for what the book club's like. You don't have to read along to get it. Uh, it's basically just a, uh, say it's kind of like a lecture series. Uh, it's $1 a month on the Patreon, patreon.com backslash Hegelbahn. And uh, I encourage you to check it out if you like uh, Marxism, if you like left work, um, if you just kind of are interested in learning something. Uh, yeah, please enjoy. series that I hope we can uh, make quite a, a tradition out of. This is the first of our reading group series where I'm going to be going through uh, some of the the major works of left thinking. Um, you know, not necessarily uh, all the canonical ones or anything like that. There's no programmatic uh, structure to this, but I am starting with Capital and we're going to work our way through Capital, which is a sort of my version of the David Harvey uh, gambit. <laughs> um, just a couple of things off the bat, though. Uh, this podcast is going to cost one dollar i'm going to give it to one dollar subscribers uh if you are a one dollar subscriber on the patreon you can have this uh this podcast uh you will be able to hear it the um the way that this will work out for other people because of course it is a leftist podcast and i don't want to uh necessarily put up a huge price block although it's a lot of work so having some sort of a uh, uh recompense is nice um but I don't want to make it so it's prohibitive. Uh, so if you have to beg, borrow, steal, pirate, whatever, uh, I'm not going to hold it against you. Uh, it's okay. This is something that I want to be doing. It's something that I think will be really popular, but also something that, um, you know, I very much want to have available to people. The other thing that's uh, important to understand about this. So uh, one of the big critiques of education such as it is, is that it is expensive and elitist. Uh, it doesn't allow for any sort of like um, easy access in, right? And uh, you can even argue that if we sort of went to a public, uh, a public sort of university system, the problem would be, of course, that you are only assuming that a certain class of student could get into uh, really, really high-level leftist thinking. Uh, you know, maybe the people aren't super good at taking tests who want to do high-level leftist thinking, but that makes their grades seem too low. Or maybe um, 
people just don't respond well to a classroom. There's a whole uh, uh, dialogue about ableism and uh, and the sort of like limits of the modern classroom there to to be delved into. And I mean, just ultimately, some people aren't college people. Some people aren't school people. And that doesn't mean that they have any less of a say in left discourse. So I get all those critiques for sure. Um, I'm coming from an academic perspective, though. This is definitely where I learned Marx. I learned it in the academy under Nicholas Brown um, over at UIC, University of Illinois, Chicago. Um, one of, you know, in my for my money, one of the best Marxist English departments in the country, if not the best. Um, so it's 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 coming from an academic perspective. I want to add these caveats, though. Uh, by no means am I sort of suggesting that my I'm not suggesting any sort of programmatic or didactic quality to these podcasts. Um, if they help you learn capital, great. If they're sort of interesting for you, great. Uh, don't take me as gospel, though. I will, you know, you're hearing my reading and I certainly stand by my reading. This is gospel if you're sort of writing up a canonical account of my leftism. Um, but what I think is more helpful in sort of this idea of a left reading group is the occasion to demystify these texts and open them up for conversation. Um, my major position uh, for quite a while has been that capital's not all that hard. Now, yeah, this is sort of a yes, but uh, scenario, it's hard enough, right? It's difficult in its own way. Um, it'll take us a while to get through. And we're not even going to, we're going to basically do like one sentence tonight, but that's all in the plan. Um, but I think capital is capital is very difficult for the first, let's say, book or so. Uh, and there are several books in, um, I think, like six or seven, eight books in uh, Capital Volume 1. I could be totally wrong on that. Uh, it's not really important how many books there are in it. Uh, but as Marx discusses the use uh, value, the exchange value of commodities, the money form, um, and ultimately gets to exploitation and uh, dead labor and the basic premises of the labor uh, theory of value, which maybe we can, uh, we might even be able to get an economist on to sort of guest and, and talk about that a little bit, because I think that's fascinating. Um, and I don't have all of the um, capacities to talk about whether or not the labor theory of value works or doesn't work or, or whatever one might think. Um, but... It, through that beginning section, Marx is quite complicated, and it is the beginning section. Now, the reason Marx is complicated is because he's drawing from Hegel. Um, I'm going to bring Hegel in. Now, some people don't care about Hegel. Some people don't want to read Hegel in, in Capital, and I have no problem with that. Um, some people argue that Marx himself wants a split from Hegel in that he says he is turning Hegel on his head um, in, in, in putting materialism first as opposed to idealism. Uh, my reading of Marx is that he is not necessarily getting rid of Hegel and by any means that he is using his own Hegelianism to resituate the thinker in its, his own sort of dialectic method. Um, why am I telling you all this? Well, it's to give you a sense of what the premise of this whole system will be of, of analysis, of uh, discussion vis-a-vis -vis capital. It's also to kind of put everything out on the table. I'm going to approach this from a Hegelian perspective. I'm going to approach this from an academic perspective. Um, I welcome questions on Twitter at Hegelbon. Um, you can email the no cartridge account, no cartridge audio at gmail.com. Uh, you can tweet the, uh, the, um, actual podcast account at no cartridge. Uh, I don't run it, but, uh, the, the intern will let me know. Um, you can call me if you want, if you can find my number or whatever. <laughs> um, but, uh, you can email me personally, uh, at trevor.strunk at gmail.com. Uh, I'm happy to take questions and I'm happy to direct this in different ways. If people have questions about the text and have questions about the ways that I'm reading it, I am not offended by challenges. I'm not put off by challenges. I think it's good. I think it's good. If you want to say, um, Hey, look like 
I think capital should be read X way, or I think capital should be read in this way or that way or whatever. Um, or why aren't you covering this or why aren't you covering that? Or what is the sense of uh, what you're talking about in terms of like real on the ground politics today? Or, you know, do you think the, the DSA is doing Marxism or the PSL is doing Marxism? Like these are all questions I'm happy to answer and happy to engage with as best I can. Um, so email me, let me know. I, I can't answer these questions unless you tell me because we're not in a classroom. I can't, you know, read your face to see if you're being quizzical or anything like that. But I welcome the questions. I'm not coming into this from a paternalistic point of view. Obviously, I'm doing the podcast, so in a sense, it is paternalistic. I am like the big voice at the front of the room. <laughs> but uh, I do not intend to make you feel as if you can't ask me questions or can't uh, challenge my readings or anything like that. One of the things that the Academy uh, should do is emphasize that no one's reading is the reading. Um, it rarely does this, and part of that is just because of the dog-eat-dog style of academic discourse. But um, in that way, you have a, a good teacher in me or a good interlocutor in me because I am well outside of the uh, various success protocols of the academy. I am um, firmly in the class of, uh, you know, adjuncts and uh, and the walking dead of the profession. Uh, you know, if someone scoops me up at some point, uh, I will, of course, change uh, my tune. But, you know, I publish, I get stuff out there. You know, I'll, I'll, I, I do this academic podcast uh, in, in all of its various forms. But I'm not, you know, a star in the profession. No one is saying they're going to use the Strunkian reading of, of Marx. I'm just like you in this regard. I have my own reading, though, and I think it's important to treat this text as a living text that needs to be interpreted. Um, and so, you know, I don't have any stake in you challenging me I mean, or like responding negatively to a challenge. I welcome it because it is interesting to me. I am interested in this as someone who finds the politics necessary and important and someone who um, has engaged with it as both an enthusiast and a professional. So that's the that's the preface to all of this. Let me get to the one thing I wanted to cover today. So I said that Marx was Hegelian uh, in his thinking. And the first sentence, I'm not going to do any of the prefaces or anything like that, which is a shame in some ways because that's where Marx talks about turning Hegel on his head. But also, you know, you want to get to the meat of this stuff. We'd be here for weeks if I was doing the introduction by Mandel and the prefaces and stuff. Um, so I'm also pulling from the Penguin edition of uh, Capital if you'd like to follow along by it for any reason. Although if you'd also like to follow along, a, a similar translation is available for free on Marxist.org. I like this edition of the Penguin. Um, I'm sort of a, a, a Luddite. I like I can't read long things on on screens, uh, but I do appreciate that all of Marxist.org has this stuff up for free. Um, it's translated by Ben Folks, who think I think does a good job, and it's introduced by Ernest Mandel, who's like a very good thinker, uh, particularly of the economics of Marx. Um, I encourage you to read his introduction and read his work; uh, is very interesting. Um, but I'm just jumping right in. I think I think it's important. So this starts on page uh, 125 of uh, the the Faust translation, and I think what I'm going to do in most of these um, sessions is go through uh, a chapter every time. So I'm starting with uh, chapter one, the commodity, but I'm only doing a little bit of it. Uh, for next time, uh, we'll do about 50 or so pages. Uh, that'll be next week. But for this one, for this intro one, since a lot of it is me sort of setting up stuff at the top, I wanted to give you a sense of, of where I was coming from. So the first chapter, uh, the first chapter of Marx's first book is called The Commodity. Uh, so the first book is called 
<laughs> I can do it all. It's Capital Volume 1, Part 1, Commodities and Money, Chapter 1, The Commodity. What you're going to find, uh, so they're not books, they're parts, but what are you going to find in, uh, in Capital is that Marx approaches his subject in a very, um, well, I don't approach it programmatically, but he certainly does. Uh, there are all sorts of stories about you know, various robber barons having editions uh, of capital that have some sort of massive uh, line editing and like, you know, things underlined and, 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 and paginations all, uh, all written down in the back and, and dog ear pages and stuff. And I don't know if that's apocryphal or not, but it could be true insofar as if you wanted to use capital as a way to better understand how to be a good capitalist or a more ruthless capitalist, you could. It is truly a book about how capitalism works. Um, that is the genius of it. In some ways, it's a follow-up and, and sort of a, a kindred spirit to Adam Smith um, and, and sort of like his work in, in much more, frankly, capitalist um, economics. Marx is essentially just taking Adam Smith and doing something more with him. Uh, as we shall see, uh, you know, Adam Smith basically assumes that labor has a particular value um, and as Louis Althusser later points out, all Marx really does to make his sort of like as like the starting point for his analysis, which, you know, I unabashedly think is brilliant, um, <clears throat> is to say, yeah, OK, labor has value. Why and where does the value come from? It's not innate. Where does it come from? And that's the core of capital. So it's not as if this book is especially anti-capitalist unless you are someone who finds the exploitation and the underpayment and the sort of human crimes that are endemic to capitalism, um, an argument against it. If you're Robert Barron, I'm sure you just see it as like a feature, not a bug. Right. Um, but as, uh, sympathetic leftists and Marxists all, um, we can of course see why this would be a critique uh, as well as a, uh, a sort of programmatic analysis. Um, but as a programmatic analysis, Marx starts off uh, at the beginning, right? In this idea of, okay, so like, what is the commodity? What is a commodity? Uh, we talk about commodities all the time. People will say like a widget factory or like, you know, a commodity can be a lot of things these days. It can be my time. It can be this podcast. It can be a creative work of art. It could be a, a desk. It could be, I'm looking just around me at this point. It could be a computer. It could be a water bottle. It could be a globe. Uh, it could be a house. It could be a dog. Anything could be a commodity if it's for sale on the market, right? But what exactly is a commodity? Marx breaks this down over this chapter. We're not going to get any good answers this time around, but we're starting off in a good place. What's a commodity? Well, Marx would say, we have to go back to the beginning to a barter society where we just have people trading stuff for stuff. I have seven chickens. You have this hat I want. Let's switch. Let's swap, right? Um, we'll get there. We'll get to the idea of the marketplace. But first, this beginning sentence. So this section in chapter one, the first section of chapter one is called the two factors of the commodity, use value and value, substance of value, magnitude of value. So we're talking about use value and value and that second term value. So use value is easy as we'll see. It's just what a thing does, right? Like what are you getting out of it? I give you a shovel. Use value of a shovel is, Hey, look, I can dig a hole, right? The other value, right? Like we understand, um, I guess like innately what that is. We understand that essentially that version of value is something like, you know, what, 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 do, what is this worth to me? What is this worth to anyone? Um, and Marx at this beginning kind of beginning stage kind of coyly just calls it value. 
um, to give away the game a little bit, um, it'll eventually become exchange value, which is important to understand in the marketplace. Now, um, when he talks about value, then he's talking about the substance of value, which is what is it and the magnitude of value. That is how much value does each thing have? It's as simple as that. It sounds complicated, but basically he's saying, hey, commodities have use value and value, which later will become exchange value. What is basically the point of this value? Where does it come from and how much is it for any given commodity? Okay, so he starts off in this sentence. The wealth of societies in which the capitalist mode of production prevails, which would at this in these days be every society, it's sort of like a, uh, a total subsumption under capital. I suppose you could make an argument for the DPRK or Venezuela or um, China, um, although, uh, you know, that's, that's probably outside of the scope of this particular episode, but I'm happy to do it if you want me to do it later. Um, in any case, the wealth of societies in which the capitalist mode of production prevails appears as an, quote, immense collection of commodities, which is to say, you know, the, the wealth of these societies are just a bunch of things. Things operate as wealth. True. Absolutely. Um, until we get to financialization, which we'll get to. The individual commodity appears as its elementary form. Our investigation therefore begins with the analysis of the commodity. Now, I've already said all this. You know that our investigation begins with the analysis of the commodity. But let me say just off the top here, this appears, right? This term appears. Now, I'm using the English translation. I'm not going to be necessarily going into all of the German. But appears is a really important term here. Later on, Marx will use the phrase form of appearance, um, which is to say the the thing that appears in the world. Money, for instance, the, the, the sort of floating signifier uh, that allows us to have exchange. He says the form of appearance of money is gold or paper bills or fiat currency or Bitcoin or whatever you want, right? Um, he doesn't say Bitcoin. He's not that far flung. Um, but uh, this level of appear, right? The wealth appears as an immense collection of commodities and the commodity appears as the elementary form of wealth. Okay. You might just take that in stride. You might say appear. Okay. It looks like it. Take this uh, seriously in terms of a Hegelian term, however, and you get the beginning of the deep dialectical quality of Marx. So you start off in, um, uh, this is from, um, this is actually on Marxist.org. Um, the, the address is Marxist.org backslash, uh, I'm sorry, just slash people get angry with me about that slash reference slash archive slash Hegel slash works slash SL slash SL appear dot HTM. So this is from the encyclopedia of philosophical sciences. It's the logic. I'm not sure who the, the translator is. These things are always kind of a little strange on Marxist.org, but it's free too. So very good. This is the second subdivision of part one of the Encyclopedia of the Philosophical Sciences, and this is on essence. And this is the second section in essence on appearance. Now, Hegel talks about essence and he says, the essence must appear or shine forth. And he's talking about things here. He's talking about objects in the world, like a tree or, an, or a, again, a computer, anything in the world. It doesn't have to be a, a commodity at this point. We're outside of the world of exchange. We're outside of the world of commodity and capitalism. This is just like stuff. Hegel isn't all that interested in exchange and capitalism. He's interested in things, right? Just like Kant is interested in things um, and art and stuff as things, aesthetic things. Um, so get get so, sort of extract yourself from the, the politics of exchange for just a second and imagine just things in the world. Like we're, we're put in a square and we see a chair in front of us, that most platonic of things, a chair. 
Um, and okay, so we see the chair, and the chair has an essence, and it must appear to us, right? We must see it and uh, note its chairness. Um, it's shining or reflection in it is the suspension and translation of it to immediacy. So, okay, it is immediate in front of us. The chair is there in the same room as us. The only way we can feel its chairness if it, is if it is immediately a chair to us. It appears and seems in its essence as a chair. This immediacy, which while as reflection into itself is a matter of subsistence, which is to say, if the chair reflects upon itself in its own chairness, that just makes it a chair. This is the tree falls in the woods question. If a tree falls in the woods, it's a fallen tree to itself, certainly, but it's also form. It's only the form of a fallen tree if it is a reflection on something else, which is to say an observer or its surroundings, a subsistence which sets itself, that is the chair, aside. So to show or shine is the characteristic by which essence is distinguished from being, by which it is essence. So if that basic subsistence is being, the chair is a chair, it, 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 its being is a chair, regardless of observer, once an observer or once a context for the chair comes in, the isness of the chair is shared with a, 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 as Hegel says, a reflection on something else, its context, its observer, and it becomes something different, it becomes essence. And it is this show, which is to say the show of essence, which when it is developed shows itself, and is appearance. So if essence is the mixture of being, that is the central subsistence of chair, the isness of chair, so to speak, um, the other arm of being, or the other arm of essence, excuse me, is appearance. Uh, the, um, the setting itself uh, aside in terms of subsistence and uh, being a reflection on something else, that is appearance. When I see a chair, it appears to me as a chair. It shows forth, it shines forth, right? Essence, accordingly, is not something beyond or behind appearance, but just as just because it is the essence which exists, the existence is appearance, or a, a more direct translation, forth shining. So what Hegel is saying is that the essence of a thing is, dialectically speaking, also its appearance. We see the thing in the world, we say, great, there's the thing, I see it, I understand it in its context, a chair is, it exists because it appears to me, the observer. And he goes out of his way to say like, yeah, appearance is like better. Um, in fact, like we, you could say like, you could say it's an important grade of the uh, logical idea, he adds. Um, he says that like the significance of the appearance has to be properly grasped or mistakes will arise. He says to say that anything is mere appearance may be misinterpreted to mean that as compared to what is merely phenomenal that is, isness. there is greater truth in the immediate, in that which is. Um, oh, excuse me, uh, I got that wrong. I'll keep my mistakes in, just so you know that I get stuff wrong too. To say that anything is mere appearance may be misinterpreted to mean that, as compared to what is merely phenomenal, the phenomena or the phenomenology of the thing being what appears to you in the world, what phenomena appears to you via your senses in the world, um, uh, there is greater truth in the immediate, in that which is. So, I see the chair, but the chair's isness, the the chairness of the chair that only it knows is more important. Hegel says, no, 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 no. In strict fact, the, that case is precisely the reverse, sort of setting himself up as a as against Kant in in, in this way. Um, what Kant would argue here is that appearance relates in the way that uh, we can't actually touch the thing, we can't understand the isness, the chairness of the thing. That is um, what he would call a noumenon. 
um, and this numinous quality of it separates us from the chair. Uh, for Hegel, the appearance is super important. Appearance is higher than mere bearing, he says. A richer category because it holds in combination the two elements of reflection into self and reflection into other. As we said, the isness of the chair, the chairness of the chair, and the context of the chair that lets me know it's a chair. Whereas being or immediacy is still mere relationlessness and apparently rests upon itself alone. Okay, right. So the chair only knows the chair. Appearance, I know the chair too. And the chair knows itself. Still, he adds, to say that anything is only an appearance suggests a real flaw, which consists in this. That appearance is still divided against itself and without intrinsic stability. Okay, that's true. Because, of course, you see a chair and I see a chair, and we might describe something different. Ferdinand de Saussure uh, calls this sort of the arbitrariness of the sign insofar as I can say chair. And maybe what you're picturing is a wooden chair, but what I'm picturing is a rolling desk chair, which is what I'm sitting in. Um, these are both chairs. They both have chairness to them, but their appearance would be different. So the appearance lacks a sort of internal stability. Um, and it says beyond and above mere appearance comes in the first place actuality, the third grade of essence of which we should act, which we will I'm sorry, of which we shall afterwards speak. Now, we aren't going to get to actuality here because we aren't in actuality for uh, Marx yet. But to hint at the place that Hegel goes, to hint at the sort of dialectical conclusion, at the end of this section, this is um, uh, subsection 141, uh, same page, the empty abstractions by which, by means of which the one identical content, this is Hegel, perforce continues into two correlatives, suspend themselves in the immediate transition, the one into the other. We're once again getting back to this point. Hegel is nothing if not repetitive. If you're intimidated by this or worried about reading Hegel ever, don't worry. He's pure repetition. He likes to repeat himself a lot. If you get the basic idea, just keep thinking, okay, he's talking about the basic idea. He's building on a theme. The content itself, nothing but their identity, which is to say the identity of the thing in itself, the chairness of the thing, and the identity which I give it by grasping its context. And these abstractions are the seeming of essence put as seeming. So the seeming of essence being the appearance, right? I see the thing. It seems to be essence. And that seeming put as seeming, which is to say that appearance is also the chair's chairness. That's the marriage of the two, the dialectical marriage of the two. By the manifestation of force, the inward is put into existence, which is to say I see the chair. It appears to me and I say that chair has chairness, which means I have put that into existence by way of my externality. I have put the inward quality of the chair into existence. The, the appearance of the thing has put the being of the thing into um, existence and created its essence. But this pudding is the mediation by empty abstractions. As we said before, this is going to be a lot different if you're imagining a wooden chair as opposed to a rolling chair. Those are two different kinds of chairnesses. In its own self, the intermediating process vanishes, vanishes to the immediacy in which the inward and the outward are absolutely identical and their distinct and their difference is distinctly no more than assumed and imposed. So in its own self, the intermediating process vanishes to the immediacy, which is to say all these questions of isness and chairness and the context and all this stuff, all the ways that these two dialectical things are, are contributing. Once we realize that they're both empty abstractions, they immediately vanish and essence becomes this element of immediacy. What is the chair in itself in the moment? What is the form of appearance? Uh, that is to say both the isness of the thing and my understanding of the thing, the form of appearance is this thing in the world. It's this thing immediately in the world. 
This is when the inward and the outward are absolutely identical and their difference is distinctly no more than assumed and imposed, which is our natural world. How often are you wondering about the chairness of a chair? Until these last five minutes, probably never, never before. So this is everyday world. This is life, right? And this identity where you don't, where like you have basically held these two opposites in collaboration. You said the, the appearance of the thing and the being of a thing are opposites until, oh, hey, they're both actually abstractions and they both rely on each other. And the inwardness is actually confirmed by the outwardness. The outwardness is confirmed by the inwardness. And in fact, they sort of just end up looking the same once they look the same. And we understand that this is all mediated and modulated uh, by and, and sort of like resolved in terms of contradiction by this question of immediacy then we get actuality, the identity of the thing, the thing in the world. So in this case, the form of appearance, that is to say the balance between appearance and being, or that balance between the thing itself and the thing in society, uh, you know, bluntly or vulgarly put, um, is not entirely different from the actuality of the thing itself, the thing in the world or the thing as it is, but the form of appearance of a thing is essentially prior to the moment we say, eh, you know what, like this actual thing and my understanding of this actual thing are effectively the same thing. They're both empty. Let's get at what the thing is and its immediacy. For Marx, the reason he uses appear here and not is or, you know, what it actually is, is that the commodity only appears as the form of wealth. The commodity looks like, oh, hey, you know, that person has a big TV. It appears to me, understanding the context of society, that they have wealth. And, you know, I can look at it and say the being of that TV is a TV. Uh, it costs $1,200. It is a, it is, its isness is, you know, determined by its value there. Um, and in fact, uh, all these collections of commodities across the world tell me how rich everyone is. What does their car will look like? What does their house look like, right? The appearance of these things, such as I understand them, the essence of them is as markers of wealth, right? But the commodity and its immediacy, its actuality is a little harder to pin down than that, as we'll find out. And while Hegel turns to the ideality of a thing, what is it in the world? What is it in its immediacy? How can we get beyond its materiality? Marx turns to its materiality and says, no, 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 no. What you've done in the first place is you've done the idealism by talking about its appearance and its isness. Now let's get to what it actually is made of. What is the commodity made of? Is it made of these parts and widgets and these things that are sort of like apolitical or is wealth made from something else? And over the next few pages and next few weeks, we're going to find out that in fact, the materiality of wealth is for Marx its actuality, and that actuality is much darker and much more complicated than we could possibly imagine from the outset. So thanks so much for tuning in. Um, again, this is the Ben Falks version of Capital Volume 1. Uh, I'm pulling Hegel from Marxist.org, and uh, it is his Encyclopedia of Philosophy, The Logic, uh, particularly uh, Part 1 of the philosophy, and then um, uh, Section B, Appearance. Uh, 
And yeah, I'm really looking forward to doing this more with you. This is invigorating for me, and I hope it's invigorating for you. Tell your friends uh, $1, and please, uh, you know, share and share alike with comrades and, and others. You know, if you can toss money in, that would be wonderful. I, you know, I use it to, to live. But um, I also want to, this is just like a, a passion project for me in some ways as well. So uh, keep an eye out. I will be releasing this, I guess, every, uh, every Wednesday night. Uh, and if failing that every Friday night. So Wednesday or Friday, but I'm hoping on Wednesday and, and staying stable with that. And yeah, uh, follow the rest of No Cartridge if you liked what I did here, but you also like video games. And I hope to see you around online. Uh, follow me. I'm at Hagelbon. I'd love to talk to you. Uh, email me, email questions, email angry letters. I'm happy to get all of them. And thanks so much, and I will talk to you next week.